Good morning and welcome to Kesset Church. I'm so excited you guys are here. Uh, for those of you who are excited about the rain, like me, um, the summer's about over, folks, so you better enjoy all that sun you're going to get because my weather's coming. Uh, uh, I, I'm a coffee and rain guy, so I just, I just like the warm mugs and the sweaters, and I just, I just all, my, all my positive memories are in the rain. So, uh, you know, I'm excited about it. I know you're not, but that's okay. Just come to church because all the fun stuff you're going to do outside probably got canceled. Um, uh, my name is Danny, if I didn't say that already. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm really excited about uh, what we're going to do today. We're in a series called Where the Girls Are, and when we started this series, one of the problems we had was trying to figure out uh, how we could incorporate uh, women's voices into the series. And uh, so we did a lot of praying and a lot of searching, and, and we have some really powerful women speakers in our church, and we also have some powerful women speakers in the community and today you're going to hear um, from someone that, uh, that just really has an incredible gift of uh, articulating scripture. And uh, her name is Lindsay Ponder. And I could share all kinds of different things about Lindsay. I could share about her education at Moody Bible Institute. I could share about her current uh, work that she's doing at the Bible Project over in Portland. I could share about uh, her continued education at Western Seminary. But what I want to really emphasize most is just her love for scripture and her love for uh, just unpacking it in a really spectacular way. Uh, Thursday was just incredible. There's kind of a Lindsay buzz in our church right now at the moment, so, uh, so I'm really excited to continue that uh, and allow you guys to uh, participate in hearing this wonderful message she is uh, about to bring. So would you please give a warm Kessid welcome to my friend, Lindsay Ponder. Good morning. <laughs> thank you for responding. <laughs> and thank you so much, Danny, for that kind introduction. Um, I think that everything that Danny just said is a really nice way of saying that I'm a big nerd. Um, <laughs> and especially a Bible nerd. There is nothing that I love more than the process of studying God's Word together in community. And I am thrilled by the privilege of getting to do that with you all this morning. I was here on site last week um, when Pastor Chris talked about the importance of looking at the Bible through um, a contextual lens, um, the context that it was originally written in. And as I've been thinking about that all week, it's occurred to me that if we just took the same principles that we use to understand our daily lives and we translated that into our study of Scripture, um, we would be so much further along than we are, and um, it just doesn't have to be rocket science. So, for instance, I've been thinking back through different experiences that I've had where the context of a situation was a make-it-or-break-it element in my perception of what was going on. And I was remembering just a few months ago when this became especially apparent to me on Valentine's Day. Um, now, I know we're out of season for this analogy, but as an unmarried woman, Valentine's Day is just an adventure for me every single year. <laughs> um, and I, I'm especially grateful that Danny invited me to speak just on the Bible because I love doing that, but it seems like every year around Valentine's Day, I get asked to talk about something involving relationships. Um, a few years ago, a church <laughs> asked me to speak on a panel about relationships 
um, as their representative for singleness because they considered me an expert on singleness. <laughs> it's funny now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this last year, like any self-respecting unmarried woman, I spent Valentine's Day with my parents. And <laughs> I don't know if you remember February 14th, 2021, but we in Vancouver were in the middle of a wicked snowstorm. And I don't know how, but my parents and I somehow managed to uh, make it out of their driveway and down the road, and we also miraculously found a Mexican restaurant that was open. And we praise God for Mexican restaurants. Um, and so we went there for dinner, and it was wonderful. But I just, I just want to set this, this scene up for you. So my parents and I are sitting at this, this table, eating our chips and salsa, and parallel to us are these two adjacent tables, um, not connected to each other, but just opposite each other, and one has all women, and the other one has all men. And it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> and so over the course of our meal, we were just, you know, out of the corner of our eye observing what was happening over here, and the amount of heckling that was coming from the men's table to the women's table was just unbelievable. Um, and, and it just continued to escalate. And they were, you know, flagging down the waiters and having food and drinks sent to the women. And um, it seemed like certain men at this table had kind of singled out, like zeroed in on certain women at the other table that they were going to approach. And um, they would, you know, come over with their little swagger going and like interact with the women. And um, my mother and I were just increasingly horrified, if I'm being honest, because we were like, this is just, these men are really not being respectful. And these poor women um, clear, clearly don't know that they deserve so much better than this kind of treatment. And um, it kind of culminated in this moment where one of the guys comes up and circles the women's table and picks out one of the women and kisses her on the lips. I, I could not believe what was happening. And I was thinking about, like, I'm going to go over there. <laughs> and I'm going to tell these guys, like, how dare you? Like, you don't just kiss random women in Mexican restaurants. Um, <laughs> thank God I didn't, um, because as we were leaving the restaurant at the end of the meal, we passed by the table of women, and one of the gals reached out and grabbed my elbow and goes, we were being so loud. I'm so sorry we were being so loud. And I saw my opportunity, and I seized it. And I said, no, don't, don't worry about it. But what I do want you to know is you women are beautiful. <laughs> and you deserve to be treated with the utmost respect. And I just cannot believe that these guys were talking to you this way. And the woman goes, oh, you mean our husbands? <laughs> I was mortified. <laughs> but also so delighted because the story had such a, a better conclusion then I thought that what was going on. And um, I bring this up because my perception of what was happening was entirely shaped by the context that I was missing. And if I had that context in mind, I would have thought, this is so cute. <laughs> These men are flirting with their wives like they're still just dating. And instead, I assumed the worst um, when, in fact, it was a good thing going on. And I think, oftentimes, the way we approach the Bible is so similar. We come with our preconceptions 
our experiences that we've had with people in the world, um, our own modern questions and concerns, our baggage, and we think this is what's happening here. And like Chris showed us last Sunday, so often we get it wrong when we do this. A teacher I look up to a lot, Dr. Tim Mackey, often says, part of loving our neighbor as ourselves is trying to understand their perspective, and this includes the biblical authors. Um, these men and women who have gone before us, who are our brothers and sisters in the faith, trying to understand their perspective and what, what they meant when they penned the words of the Bible. So naturally, I picked a passage today where context is absolutely critical for understanding what's really going on. It's a story that has been immensely formative in my own life, and I think that it holds comfort and conviction for all of us this morning. I want to pray really quickly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, that when we come to your word, we never leave unchanged. So we ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can, that you would take this one word, that you would divide and multiply it, that you would give it to each of us in a specific way, and we trust you to do that. In your name, Lord, amen. Today we turn our attention to a woman of God that I admire very much. She features prominently in Matthew chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and turn there. Um, we're going to be working our way through Matthew 15, 21 to 28. And while you're looking that up, um, let me tell you that I picked this story because it's weird. It's kind of cringy even. And it's a story that at first glance does not leave us with warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. Now, right before our story for today opens, earlier in Matthew 15, we find Jesus ministering to hurting, sick Israelites in the Galilee region. This is something he often does. He spent a lot of time doing ministry in Galilee. And some Pharisees came up from the south, from the city of Jerusalem, to question him. And um, something else Jesus also did a lot was offend the Pharisees. And he does it again, um, giving them more fuel for their decision to kill him. He calls them hypocrites. And then he says this in verses 8 to 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then to his disciples and the people in the crowd, he turns and he says, hear and understand. Hear and understand. Don't be like the Pharisees. They know the scriptures and they teach doctrine, but they miss my heart. They teach their own interpretation. They teach a complicated set of commandments, and I want you to hear and understand who I am and what I'm offering you. But the Pharisees don't back down, and in response, Jesus withdraws. You would, too, if someone was trying to kill you. Um, and where does he withdraw to? Look with me at Matthew 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, that's Gentile country. Now, if you're at all familiar with biblical history, you know that Jews and Gentiles tend to not associate. It was actually a commandment given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament by God that if the Jews wanted to go into the temple to worship God, they had to keep themselves clean. And associating with Gentiles made them unclean. 
And so going to Gentile region is um, not something a Jewish teacher would typically do. But it's as if Jesus is so desperate to get away from the persecution of his own people that he goes somewhere they will not follow him. But poor Jesus can't catch a break because no sooner does he arrive than someone comes running out from the towns to meet him. It's a Canaanite woman. This is verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And did you catch that? We've got ourselves a Canaanite woman here. First of all, we should know, because Jesus is a Jewish teacher, for a woman to approach him at all is strange in itself. A few weeks ago, my friend Brenna Blaine taught us from John 4 and talked about how women were considered second-class citizens in the ancient world. For a woman to approach Jesus is unusual. For a Gentile to approach Jesus is unusual. So we have a double whammy of unusual here. And this isn't just any Gentile. Um, Something I find helpful when reading the Bible is keeping in mind that the biblical authors very rarely include details in the narratives. And so anytime there's a specific detail, you need to pay attention because there's something important happening here. So Matthew doesn't call her a Gentile woman. He calls her a Canaanite. And this, this is supposed to trigger something in our minds. What comes to mind when you think of Canaanites? For me, it's the stories of conquest in the Old Testament. When Joshua takes over from Moses and leads the people of Israel into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the people already living there are the Canaanites. And they are known for idolatry, child sacrifice, and grotesque sexual practices. That's what Canaanites are known for. They are the classic enemies of Israel, and this woman is identified with that people group. And why is she coming after Jesus? She has a need. She has a demon-possessed daughter. And somehow she has this idea in her mind that Jesus can do something about this. But is that all she thinks? Does she think Jesus is just a magician or a physician or some kind of itinerant shaman? Someone who can fix something for her? No. And we know from how this woman addresses Jesus. She calls him Lord, son of David. These are messianic titles. These are titles reserved just for referring to the Jewish Messiah the king of Israel. This is crazy because she's not from Israel. She's a Canaanite. Jesus just corrected the teachers of the Jewish law for not understanding who he is. And now here is a Gentile, a Canaanite, an enemy of Israel, and a woman to boot. And she has grasped something about Jesus that all of these Jewish men have failed to understand. And what is Jesus' response? He did not answer her a word. Well, that seems not like Jesus. (laughs) When has anyone ever come to him and he's ignored them? Let's keep reading, verse 23. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Dang. What is Jesus saying? 
This is why this story made me cringe for so long. It just seems so unlike the other stories that we hear of Jesus in the Gospels and his interactions with literally anyone. This woman seems to be someone who confirms our worst fears. She's an outcast. Her voice is silenced. She seems unimportant, limited. And it's Jesus who reinforces those messages. But is that really what's happening? Jesus says he came only for the lost sheep of Israel. What's that about? Jesus is calling on old imagery here to express where things were currently at in the story of redemption. Let's step back in time for a second. Think back to the opening chapters of our Bibles, Genesis 1 to 3. We know that God wanted all of humanity to be his partners in stewarding the earth, um, in bringing redemption and blessing to the world that he had made. But humanity chose to define good for themselves. And so God picked one family, the family of Abraham, to fulfill that mission, to bring redemption and blessing to the nations. Except Abraham's family kept messing it up too. That's basically what the whole Old Testament is about. Even the most famous king of Israel, David, a man supposedly after God's heart. And so God promised to intervene himself. Jesus here in Matthew 15 is drawing imagery from Ezekiel 34, where Ezekiel critiques the rulers of Israel. He calls them shepherds like David. Shepherds that were supposed to be caring for God's flock, but they eat the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. Israel's kings have let down the nation and led them into idolatry and wickedness. And what will God do? He says in Ezekiel 34, 23, Then I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. So God promises that a descendant of David, a new shepherd, would come to redeem Israel and eventually the world. Jesus is identifying himself as that Davidic shepherd, the shepherd who's here to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. It's not time yet for his ministry to the nations. There will be a ministry to the nations, but right now he is on a specific mission to the family of Abraham. If you're like me, this makes you a little uncomfortable. Or maybe it's just me. But I think in the West, we believe in equality and inclusion at all costs. But just bear in mind, this actually represents something that you love about God, that he keeps his promises, all of them, even when it seems crazy to us. And yet, doesn't this still seem a little out of character? Remember a few chapters back in Matthew 8 when Jesus healed the servant or the family member of a Roman centurion? And then just a little bit after that, he cast out demons from two Gentile men? Clearly, Jesus has no problem with Gentiles. What does that tell you? Everything we know of Jesus up until this point is that nothing moves him more than hurting people of any nationality. Just wait, because this story gets even weirder. Verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So did Jesus just call this woman a dog? That's the first question in my mind when I read this. 
It just seems incredibly cold. This woman is on her knees before Jesus, begging him for help, and he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a moment where context is so important. Something Jesus does frequently while teaching is tell parables. He's not really calling her a dog. He's telling a little parable to illustrate what he just said. It reinforces it, that he's on a mission specifically to Israel right now. The images of the family dinner table with all the kids crowding around and the family dog begging for food. The family dog always gets fed, but the kids eat first. He's restating that he's coming first for Israel and later for the nations. Now we'll circle back to this in a moment because there's so much more here that only context can help us understand. But I want to take a moment and ask you first, if you've ever experienced a deep disappointment, what was your response? Especially one where you were seeking the Lord for something and he either didn't respond or he didn't give you the answer that you wanted. Did you walk away and throw your hands in the air in frustration? Did you numb out and shrug your shoulders and say, God just didn't want me to have it? Did you get angry? What happened when your only option fell through? Because that is what just happened for this woman. I'll share my own experience. I've come to see that too often, it takes me too long to ask for what I really want from God in the first place. Like I don't really trust God's goodness enough to ask. It's a lot easier to not get my hopes up than risk disappointment. And then if I am met with silence or a no, I give up. And it confirms my worst fears. I would never overtly say God isn't good, but when we are met with silence or a no, it definitely calls God's goodness to question. Or his compassion, or his awareness, or his involvement, like God is absent, far from my pain. That's why this woman's response is insane. First of all, she agrees with Jesus. She concedes his point, and then she undermines it. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Even the dogs get scraps, Jesus. Even the dogs get something from you. I mean, the woman argues with Jesus. She essentially says, what you're saying isn't really true, Jesus. What is she doing? She's, she's looking ahead to what's coming in the redemption story, the day when Gentiles will be included in the family of God. She's saying, Jesus, you're my Lord too. And your reign and promises are true, not just for the Jewish people, but for me. She acknowledges her trust that Jesus is bringing his kingdom someday. So why not now? She asked Jesus if she might see some of those kingdom promises come to bear on her current reality. And here's Jesus' response, verse 28. And Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What just happened? Jesus is super impressed with her response. This expression, oh woman, in the Greek is like, oh woman, dang girl, 
and he heals her daughter. There is so much more to this story than meets the eye. I love the Bible. We have to put on our, our cultural context goggles for a minute and just reassess this story. So the key to this whole story, I think, lies in the teaching methods of Jesus' day. Jesus is a teacher. Teachers in the ancient world didn't do this. They don't do what we do in college classes or in church with someone lecturing at the front of the room and everyone else just listening. Their teaching methods were far more Socratic. They asked questions, they challenged thinking, they said things that provoked responses from their students. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He sees something of merit in this woman. He can tell she has remarkable faith. And he's testing her. He's drawing it out of her, first by silence, and then with this provocative parable. This is remarkable, because you know who wouldn't study under a Jewish teacher? A woman? Even a Jewish woman, but especially not a Canaanite woman. By challenging her in this way, Jesus is talking to her like one of his disciples, a student, an equal. Do you see this? I love this story because it is such a plot twist. You first read it and you think Jesus is being borderline disrespectful with this woman, but then you sit with it and you realize Jesus just elevated her to that of an equal with his, his disciples. She asked for crumbs and Jesus gave her a seat at the table. Now, I think this story has something to say to women specifically, and not just women, but anyone whose society has deemed an outcast. I think it also has something paradigm-shifting to say to each and every one of us who follows Jesus. I want to speak to women and those on the outskirts of society first. This story is a source of comfort to you, outcast. And this woman is an inspiration in so many ways because she has no business speaking to Jesus. It's not a question of whether she should, according to our ethics, get something from him or not. It's that she doesn't have anything, any rights to stand upon to make her claim. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She knows she has no real right to be here in front of Jesus. And yet, she will not be satisfied with her outcast status. And Jesus doesn't ask her to be satisfied with her outcast status. He's not putting her in her place. He's dignifying her. This story speaks to the equality of men and women in the sight of God. That should be an immense source of comfort to any of us who have ever been on the outskirts of the in-crowd which has probably been all of us at some point. This story is grounds for you to not be satisfied with being an outcast too. God's kingdom is built of former outcasts who were included by the barrier-bridging love of Jesus Christ. But this woman's posture, her way of approaching Jesus, has something to show us about what it looks like to advocate for ourselves with God and within his economy. Consider her posture. Despite the disparities that would have been all too apparent to her in speaking to a Jewish rabbi, a man who for her was in the position of privilege above her, 
She does not speak from anger or self-justification. She is not entitled. She is not raging. She does not demand her rights. She comes to Jesus like the psalmists who wrote the songs of lament, absolutely demanding that Jesus answer her. But the basis is not her womanhood. The basis is not her human rights. How often do we make demands of God and one another based on our rights? That's not what this woman is doing. What is she standing on? She is standing in her confidence of who Jesus is. Her confidence in his promises. Her confidence that he will keep his word. She's exercising her prophetic imagination. Her prophetic imagination. She calls Jesus son of David. As if she somehow knows he's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's her Messiah. She is looking ahead to God's plans and purposes, what he is already at work doing in the world. She knows he's come to cast out demons and heal the sick. She knows at some point in God's kingdom, all outcasts will belong. Men won't subjugate women, and women won't manipulate men. She is tapping into what she knows is coming and asking, why not now, Jesus? As she identifies who he is, she's advocating for a change in her own life. The prophets and the psalmists who wrote of lament in the Bible critiqued their own society and culture. But they never did it by starting with a message of condemnation. The prophets always imagined a greater future, something absolutely in line with God's own purposes and therefore absolutely possible. Simply by envisioning a better future, they brought a critique against the status quo. As an example, this is what made and continues to make Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech so powerful. Is that speech just a list of everything wrong in society? No. But do you come to know what is wrong with society because of the beautiful future of hope that he envisioned? Absolutely. I think this woman's posture flies in the face of most modern methods of activism. Should inequality be confronted? Absolutely. Should wrongs be righted? Absolutely. But will cancel culture ever accomplish the purposes of God? I don't think so. There is a challenge here for those of us on the outskirts of society or the outskirts of the church today. Will we retreat into bitterness and guilt tactics? Will we resort to canceling all that we despise? Or will we do what this woman does? Look ahead to the purposes and plans of God, the kingdom he inaugurated with Jesus and the kingdom he is bringing. Will we live into that kingdom now? Will we call others higher with us? Will we dare to ask God to right the wrongs he's going to right at some point? To dare to ask him, why not now? So much is possible when we do this. This woman's boldness, in combination with her humility, results in an answer to her own desperate need, and so much more. Just a few verses later, in Matthew 15, Jesus moves on from this place and he feeds 4,000 people. This is the second miraculous feeding in Matthew's Gospel. You're probably familiar with the iconic feeding of the 5,000. This is a different one. 
And there's this little detail in verse 31 I want you to see. Verse 31 says, the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Do you notice anything here? Why did Matthew clarify that these people praise the God of Israel? Aren't they in Israel? No! <laughs> He's still in Gentile territory, and these are Gentiles. Jesus tells this woman, I'm on a mission to Israel. And then, after his conversation with her, he goes and he feeds and heals and casts out demons from 4,000 Gentiles. This woman's faith is a linchpin, a pivot point, a divine plot twist. It's like her faith unlocks Jesus' own ministry to the nations. Do you see this? Here's where this story just undoes me. And I think it has something immensely important to say to all of us, man and woman, disciple new and time-tested. Because this woman is so confident. She's so confident. She has this confident, leave-it-all-on-the-line boldness that we all want. And yet, like we've already talked about, it's not a confidence born of anything that she brought to the table. Where is her confident sense of identity coming from? She knows who she is because she knows whose she is. This woman has staked her very identity on who Jesus is. Truer words have never been spoken of her or to her than what Jesus has to say. There's a security here. She has nothing to lose in approaching Jesus because she's desperate, but she apparently knows she's not going to lose because she knows Jesus is infinitely good. This woman is wildly confident, incredibly bold, demanding, and yet surrendered. She's willing to accept the crumbs. Because for this woman, crumbs from Jesus' hand are better than anything she could have done for herself or gotten somewhere else. There's something else here, too. Something Jesus, I think, wants us to understand about faith. When we use the word faith, so often we're talking about a system of belief, a system of faith, something cognitive, something we think. When Jesus uses the word faith, he's talking about something he sees. It's the kind of faith that leaps forward because it knows Jesus can do something for me that I cannot do for myself and I must get in front of him. You see, this woman is desperate. She's desperate. She's terrified for her daughter. She doesn't know what to do. She can't do anything. She can't fix it. She could lose everything. And so she comes to Jesus with nothing to lose and everything to gain, and he makes her wait. You know? He says nothing to her at first. How often have we all been here? Silence on the other end of the line when we pray. No answer, and we're desperate. And yet, even in her desperation, this woman is full of radical hope in who God is. In the face of a no, this woman just keeps coming. This is convicting to me because often when I wait on God, I'm full of fear. This woman is not waiting in dread. She is waiting in hope. 
She knows who Jesus is. She knows that Jesus is God. She knows that he is good. This, this is faith that works. Faith that acts. Faith that refuses to take no for an answer. Faith that elevates the outcast. Faith that makes a difference in present reality by throwing itself in front of Jesus. I want to leave you with a couple concluding thoughts, a challenge for all of us in how we approach the Lord. This woman has been elevated, first by Jesus, and second by Matthew in his retelling of this story, because they've set her up as an example to us of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we need to consider what her example means for our prayer lives. We all know Sometimes God says no to our prayers. And there are times when we need to accept his no and remain confident in his goodness. Because if he's good, everything he does for us is good, whether we see it right now or not. But this story is showing us something else, too. This story shows us that even while being surrendered to God, Sometimes we don't persist in prayer enough. Somewhere along the line, we learned that being surrendered to God meant praying without zeal, praying without intentionality, praying without desperate, reckless abandon. Sometimes our surrender is just us giving up because we don't actually think God will do anything for us. And yet here is Jesus testing this woman's faith, daring her not to take no for an answer. And it's understandable when we don't persist. I think sometimes it comes from mistrust of God, and sometimes it comes from this self-deprecating posture I know I can fall into, where we don't believe we're worth a yes. And yet the moment we think that, we're missing the point altogether. This woman reminds us we were never the starting point. It's not that we don't matter, we do. But we matter because God reached down into the dirt, molded us with his own hands, and then continually comes after us into our flesh, into our humanity, into our dust, in the person of Jesus, and he lifts our heads when we insist on submitting ourselves again to the dust from whence we came. This woman is an example to us all. She's not waiting in her house for Jesus to come to her. She's running after him, throwing everything on the line, getting in front of him, and then getting in front of him again, wildly confident in who she is because of whose she is. So in the prayers you're praying where God seems silent, what might happen if you persisted? What would happen if you held God to his promises in his word, to his own faithfulness and character? What would happen if you didn't take no for an answer? You might just get what you ask for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you that you don't fit our categories. That just when we think we have you figured out, you prove yourself infinitely better than anything we could have expected or conjured up in our imaginations. Lord, would you give us the courage to come boldly before you and the discernment to know when we ought to persist. Would you make us men and women confident in who we are because of whose we are? Would you increase our awe of you, Lord, our trust in your goodness? We want to know what this kind of life is like, Lord. This kind of life willing to make a difference or trust you to make a difference. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. I found you in the middle of my mess. You had been there all along Open arms and open heart You called me in You didn't hesitate at all And the lies I once believed They crumbled At the weight of truth and the fear that gripped my heart is arrested so that I can see you and when I only see in part I will prophesy your promise I believe you you start and I will trust you in the process I believe you God yes I do. you set a table in the middle of my world you knew the outcome of it all when what I faced, it looked like it would never end. Oh, you said, watch the giants fall. And the lies I once believed, they crumbled at the weight of your truth. And the fear that gripped my heart. Promise.
to you. It is a gift. God, I pray that we would continue to carry that heart posture of worship throughout our day, throughout our week, with everyone that we meet, Lord. God, I ask that in this season of time where things feel unstable, God, that you would be our stability, that your power, your presence, your word would be what we stand on. That is our firm foundation, Lord we would not put our hope and our trust in the things of this world. God, we love you, we praise you, and we trust you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Have a great rest of your week, and we hope to see you next time.